How are we doing this morning? Oh, come on, you're going to have to do better than that. <laughs> Man, where's Marty when we need him? You can usually get an amen or a hallelujah out of Marty. Um, uh, want to uh, want to depress you a bit as we get started. So let me ask you some questions here. Uh, I want you to think about for just a minute your deepest and darkest sin. Think about the thing that you have done either a long way back or maybe pretty recently about which you feel desperately guilty and deeply ashamed. Think about maybe that word that you spoke or that thing that you said and then did that you can't take back. Think about the thing in your past that keeps a lot of your relationships distant because you don't really want to be deeply known because you're afraid that if you get really known at the core of who you are, that you'll be rejected because they will find out about that or this or these things that I've done. Maybe it's an addiction that you still struggle with or maybe it's a biting tongue that you can't seem to control. Or maybe it's a betrayal of a friend or a family member. Or a period of your life where you wandered away from the Lord for a long time and got into a lot of wild and woolly behavior. And now you look back on that and what you feel is deep shame. Anybody got something in mind? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Think about the reasons that that, that you feel that way. And now that everybody is sufficiently depressed, let me ask this question. On what do you base your relationship with God? On what do you base your relationship with God? And I know this is an evangelical free church, and so we all know, at least theologically and theoretically, that our relationship with God is based not on our performance, but solely on the grace of God that we sang about. That God loves, loved us not when we were already pretty good people, but when we were very wicked people. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? And we all know that theologically and theoretically, but lots of us, now you can, you can if you want, raise your hand on this. How many of you feel like your relationship is, with God is better when you are behaving well? <laughs> and that maybe God loves me just a little bit more today because after all, today I prayed and did my quiet time. <laughs> okay. And, you know, if my day is not going so well, it's probably because, well, I forgot to read my Bible and pray this morning, and God's probably whacking me for that. 
right? How many of us start to feel that way? That even though we know theologically and theoretically that all of our sins is, are cleansed from us by the, by the blood of Jesus Christ, and even though we know that God already loves us as much as He is ever going to, because He already loves us as much as it is possible for anyone to love us, we still feel in our hearts like our relationship with God is based on performance, that it's kind of conditional. And I want to look at, at, at a passage this morning that's going to explode a lot of that feeling for you. At least I hope so. Uh, to just ask one more question here before we get into it. What if you could be completely cleansed, completely cleansed? from all of your sin and all of your shame, and know that God loves you and accepts you even when you are, are engaged or were engaged in that deep, dark, gross, evil sin. I ask you to think about here just a minute. Even then, that God loves you and accepts you. Well, Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to look at this, because we're going to look at the reality that God does love you, and He does accept you, even when you're in sin, and on top of that, that even if you have been in sin, you can be completely and totally cleansed. I want to look for my mic cutting out, that sounds like it is, maybe I got a loose wire or something, but... If it shuts off completely, somebody wave their arm or something, because uh, I can't always tell. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it there were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. And according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, most of us know that God's standard is far above what we can devise for ourselves, right? Most of us, you know, if we if I told you in order to be right with God, you have to be able to run the 400-meter hurdles. If the hurdles are 2 feet high, what that means is, well, you need to go practice. And if you work at it, then eventually you'll be able to do it. 
But how about if the hurdles are a thousand feet high? You're going to be able to practice that one? Work it up? Like really, you know, get your vertical leap down? No. No matter how much you practice, no matter how much running you do, and I've been doing a lot of running lately. It's about the only thing I post on Facebook anymore is my running. Okay, I've been doing a lot of running. And no matter how much you do, guess what? You're never going to be able to clear hurdles that are 1,000 feet high. Why? Well, because certain laws of physics, like gravity and so forth, are going to come into play, and you're not going to be able to float up over those. Why? They're simply too tall. They're simply that, they're that much too far beyond your ability on your own to attain, right? God's standard is of holiness, of perfection, is like that. It's like telling people, in order to be in relationship with God, you have to be able to run, these, run, this, uh, run this racetrack, and uh, there's only about 20 hurdles, but they're all 1,000 feet high. Have fun. Go for it. You're not going to be able to make that happen, right? And what you need is someone who can advocate for you when you fail to do what is impossible for you to do. And so God, because he is gracious, gave Moses a system of laws which were designed to point out to people God's standard, first of all, but to also point out to people that they couldn't keep it. That by running faster and training harder, that they were not going to be able to completely be holy and righteous before God. And so part of the whole point of all those regulations, there's about 613 laws in the Old Testament that are given. 613. From what kind of clothes you could wear to what kind of sacrifice you had to offer for certain things and at certain times of the year to what kind of crops you could grow and how you could grow them to whether what kind of house you had to have and how it had to be built and if you got mold in your house, what you had to do to de deal with it and what you um, could do if you got mold on your clothes, how you, you had to wash your body, how you had to do everything that you conducted your life with. And if you broke even one of these, then you were guilty before God. And so it was to point out that no one was going to be able to keep this. And so you had, a, you had priests whose job it was to offer sacrifice on your behalf to restore your relationship with God. And these priests, in accordance with God's law, set up a, a, a structure called the tabernacle. It had a fabric outer wall between posts that went around it, and then inside it they had an altar for sacrifice and a wash basin for the priests to clean up after they had made the sacrifice. And then inside that were, was a, another structure, the tabernacle itself. And it had two rooms, an outer room where all the priests could go in, and it was lit with a lamp, a seven-branched candelabra, a menorah, a giant one made of solid gold that was kept burning all the time. And then on the other side of the room, they had a table that contained what was called the bread of the presence, which is what the priests would eat while they were serving at the tabernacle and then later at the temple. And then 
uh, at the back of the room, there was an altar of incense, and you would burn incense on it. And the smoke from that incense would fill other rooms, which was called the most holy place. And inside the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, one of my favorite movies of all time, Spielberg actually does a pretty good job with it. Uh, but the Ark is this hollow wooden box uh, that's overlaid with gold. And on the top of it, there's this uh, lid. And that lid has a lip around it that goes all the way around and two cherubim, two angelic winged angels uh, that that sit on the top of it. And then inside the box, there were three things. There was the original tablets of the law that Moses broke. There was a, a bowl or an urn of manna. And there was Aaron's rod that budded. And these things all symbolized different periods of rebellion in the history of the nation of Israel. And the idea was that God in his holiness and with the holy angels that are associated with his throne, the cherubim, would look down into that box and they would see the sin of the nation. And so once a year, about this time of year, on the Day of Atonement at Yom Kippur, which is what that means, Day of Atonement. Yom is day, Kippur is atonement. On Yom Kippur, the priest would slaughter a bull for himself and his family and a goat for the nation. And he would collect some of the blood from those animals, and he would go into the most holy place, and he would pour blood on the top of, that, of the ark. And he would only do this after he had made sure that the altar of incense was burning well with a lot of smoke coming off of it. And the idea was is that the, these smoke from the incense was the prayers of the people going up before God, but nevertheless... It also filled the whole structure with smoke. And thus he was covered as he went into the presence of God by the prayers of the people. And then he would pour that blood on the top of the ark. And the idea was symbolically then that God in his holiness and his holy angels would look down on the sin of the people and they would see it covered by the blood of sacrifice. And this is all symbol. Because what you realized as you did this is that a, a goat and a bull is not a perfect substitute for a human being. But God in his word all through the Old Testament had promised that one day would come a Messiah who would make things right with God and who would remove completely the sin of the people. And all of this is done in preparation and anticipation of the final priest who is going to come. And in uh, verse 11, we meet him. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a, of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more 
with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must first be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness since. Now, remember last week, if you, if you think back to last week, I know this is seven days have passed, so this might be challenging. But uh, if you remember last week, we talked about the person of Christ and who he is and what his identity is. That he is the perfect son of God, the perfect son of David, the Savior, one person with two natures forever united as the Savior of the world. This week, what we're talking about is the work of Christ. What are the things that Jesus is doing? What is it that he accomplished for us, and how did that happen? And this is about how Jesus grants us salvation and cleansing. Well, first, Jesus is a better priest than the Old Testament, the Old Covenant priest, because he went into not an earthly tabernacle or an earthly temple, which was built as a picture of the one in heaven, but he went into the real one of which these things were only a copy. And what he's saying here is that in his death and resurrection and ultimately in his ascension, that Jesus ascends into heaven and serves there as a priest for us. See, God, when he gave Moses the the design for the tabernacle, and then later it was built into a permanent structure called the temple. He said, make it according to the pattern that I showed you on the mountain. And we don't exactly know what that means, but what we do know is that these things were a copy of heavenly things that were much higher, and uh, and these were only just kind of the the, the imitation, the copy. And so says that Jesus is a better priest because he went into the real temple of God in his presence. And second, when he went, he went not with animal sacrifice, but with a perfect sacrifice himself. And not with animal blood, but his own blood. You know, the goat or the bull or the lamb had to be young males without blemish. And in fact, you had to keep it in your house if you're going to Celebrate the Passover, you had to keep the the animal you were going to sacrifice in your house for seven days to inspect it and make sure it was healthy and to go over it and make sure there were no scars or spots or, or sores or anything that would make it less than perfect. And what the apostle here is pointing out is that Jesus, as the perfect son of David and perfect son of God, 
was completely without blemish. He was completely sinless. He was the perfect ideal to which the animal sacrifices of the law only pointed. He was the fulfillment of all of that predictive stuff. And so, therefore, his atonement that he brings is not just the temporary covering for our sins, but it's the one atonement, an eternal redemption. Look here, okay? Here at this verse, let me show you. It says here, let me see this verse. Verse 12, end of verse 12. By means of his own blood, he secured an eternal redemption. See, the thing with the Old Testament sacrifices is that you would wait every year for the Day of Atonement when you would finally be cleansed. But here's the thing. You were guilty all that time. And then the Day of Atonement would come, and your sins would be covered over symbolically. But in reality, you still felt guilty. And the next day, guess what? Probably sinned again, which meant that you had to wait one more year until it came around again where you could be symbolically cleansed. But Jesus brought eternal atonement, eternal redemption, eternal cleansing once and for all with the one sacrifice of himself. And under the old covenant, you had to get cleansing in between atonement days with more sacrifices and more bloodshed. And when you were ceremonially defiled, which could happen to you, like if you had to bury someone who was part of your family, if you, were, if you touched a dead body, you were defiled. If you and your spouse were together in an intimate way, you were defiled. If you ate something that was out of a pot that wasn't clean, well, then you were defiled. If you did anything that in any way violated the ceremonial law, you were defiled. And so you had to go to the, to the tabernacle or the temple, and you had to get sprinkled with this water that was mixed with ashes from a red heifer that they had burned. And then you were cleansed, and then you were able to go back and worship God again. And if you actually sinned, well, then you had to go get another sacrifice, and you would sacrifice in the morning and in the evening. They would sacrifice, and you would have to offer one also for yourself. And you had to go to the priest, and you'd put the, your hand on the animal, and you would name what sin you had committed. And then the priest would slit the throat of that animal, and they would burn the fat portions and, so, and they would burn the blood of that animal on the altar, and then you were cleansed for the day from that sin. And you had to do this over and over and over and over. And you looked forward in faith to the day when Messiah was coming. But Jesus, when he came, cleanses not just symbolically, but really cleanses. And he says here, he cleanses our consciences and enables us to serve God. And not based on law and based on obedience, but based on freedom and joy because we have received eternal life because of our eternal redemption. 
So Jesus is not an imperfect mediator of an imperfect covenant like the one described in the Old Testament. He is the perfect mediator of the new covenant. And he gives us an eternal inheritance with God. Look at verse 15 to 17 if you've got it. Basically, what these verses are about is that God, in a sense, in sending Jesus, put us in his will. Now, some of us maybe can think of some earthly people that we think have a lot of stuff, maybe a lot of money, that we would like to be put into their will. But essentially, what Hebrews is telling us here is that God put us into his will. And when Jesus died, his will went into effect, and we received from God an eternal inheritance. You know, if you, if you were to get adopted, say, into the Walton family, come on, Walmart heir, okay, that would be pretty good, right? Not only do you have a lot of money, but you can buy it at a discount, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, or if you became a Gates heir, that'd be pretty good, right? But guess what? When you die, no U-Haul is going to follow your hearse. It's not an eternal inheritance. It doesn't last forever. When you die, it's gone. It goes to somebody else. But here's the great part about this. When you receive an eternal inheritance from God, when you die is when you receive it. And you receive something that doesn't simply pass away and get used up in the enjoying of it. The more that you enjoy it, there's never any less of it. You know, as we sing, you know, we sing Amazing Grace when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. How's the rest of it go? We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. In other words, we get to enjoy eternal life for how long? Forever. How, if we've been there a long time, how much longer is there left? Still forever. <laughs> if we've been there forever, how much longer is there left? There's still forever left. We still get to enjoy it forever. And God put us in his will so that when Jesus died, we inherited all these things. Promise. And so in, in verses uh, 18 to 21, what you see is just as the first covenant brought purification through the sprinkling of sinful people with the blood of sacrifice. We have been cleansed, and we have been granted life because we have been sprinkled not by Moses, but by Jesus, and not by the blood of an animal, but by the blood of the Savior, and not by some stand-in who is imperfect. Moses was a great man, but he was an imperfect priest. We have been sprinkled by a perfect priest who grants cleansing through the shedding of his own blood. I want to look more here, last few verses of this chapter, verse 23 to 28, about Jesus, the final sacrifice and great high priest. Look here what it says. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these, with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it appointed for a man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Here's what the apostle is saying here. The old stuff of the tabernacle and the temple had to be purified with sacrifice so that sinners could enter into God's presence and be forgiven symbolically and temporarily. And so certainly, for sinners to be forgiven and enter into God's presence in reality and for eternity requires a better sacrifice, right? If the old stuff which only symbolically enabled us to enter into God's presence, required sacrifice than to enter really into God's presence. Not just symbolically, but really. Now think about that. That is what what going to heaven means. That you actually have the right to enter into the throne room of God as his child. You know, I love, I, I love old photos, you know, of presidents and so forth. How many of you have seen the old photos, I think they were in Life magazine, of President Kennedy? And you got little John John under the Resolute desk there, you know, and they're out in the yard and whatever. And you got this kid in the Oval Office, you know? And you think, oh, that's really cool. Wouldn't it be amazing to be the child of the president. Because if you're on a tour of the White House, they do not take you into the Oval. And certainly they don't take you into into places where the president is. Why? Because he is the president of the United States. You are a peon. Government by the people are not. I'm sorry, you are um, not allowed in there, right? Or I remember reading about about David Eisenhower being in Europe, and he's staying in some castle somewhere. And he's a little boy, and he's playing on the floor with his dad. And his dad, at one point, gets up, and he opens these doors. And as soon as he does, he walks out on this balcony, and 10,000 heels snap to attention. Why? Because the commander of the armies has appeared. We, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, are allowed to enter into the presence of God because he has, through his blood, cleansed us from sin. And he stands in heaven as our priest interceding for us. What a priest does is to stand between God and men and uh, and and offer himself as the intermediary. Now, a human being, someone who is merely a human being, is not a real good intermediary because he himself has sinned. But Jesus is the perfect high priest because he has no sin, and then on top of that, as God, he is able to be a perfect mediator between us and God. 
And because his blood cleanses us from sin, when we stand before God, we're not just acquitted. You know, a lot of times in the criminal proceeding, guilty people get off. And they got acquitted, right? In other words, we didn't have enough evidence to, beyond a reasonable doubt, send you to prison or to, to a dance at the end of a rope. You got acquitted. But in Jesus Christ, through his death, his sacrifice, his action as high priest pouring out his blood on the mercy seat before God, we are not just acquitted, we are declared innocent. We are declared innocent of anything we've ever done. And that, friends, is what Jesus is doing. And by the way, the Bible doesn't say this here in this place, but something you need to know. Remember, we confess that Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God. You don't maybe realize how significant that is. You go through the tabernacle and you go through the temple and you learn about all these furnishings and you learn about golden uh, fire pans and golden shovels and you know brass uh, altars and overlaid with brass carry poles and have to be uh, this kind of specification and this much weight of this and that of this and this kind of linen and this kind of hide to go over the tabernacle and all, all this stuff, right? You know what you never find anywhere any, in any of those descriptions, and it goes on for pages and pages and pages? You know what you never find? Chairs. There's not one chair anywhere in the tabernacle and the temple. Why? Because their work is never done. But Jesus Christ, as the great high priest, when he offers the one sacrifice for all sin, sits at the right hand of God. Why? Because his work done. His work done. And a lot of times, and I don't want to be unkind here, but there, there are Christian people who believe that somehow as you take communion, that Jesus Christ is re-sacrificed over and over as you take communion. Can I tell you, with all the love of Christ and in all sincerity and with great compassion and kindness on those folks, nothing could be more unbiblical than that. Jesus made one sacrifice, and it bought for us eternal redemption. And it is one sacrifice for all sin, for all people, forever. And there is no need for another one. And if that is true, what must I do with these great truths? Well, three things. Number one, actually four. I'll squeeze another one in there. If I am an unbeliever, I must, I must repent of my sin and receive forgiveness from God through the blood of Christ. This chapter teaches us a great deal of things, more than I've been able to go into in detail. I, I, I could teach the rest of the day on this chapter. I really could. But here's the thing. None of these blessings and benefits belong to you if you do not belong to Jesus. None of them. 
If you have never come to Jesus Christ in faith, trusting that his sacrifice paid for your sin, then your sin separates you from God now and will separate you from God forever in hell by your choice. Because God, because he loves you, did everything that was necessary to purchase salvation for you. Everything. And so to reject that is to reject the only means of salvation which God has made possible and which he has purchased at great cost, the death of the Son of God. And so if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ that his sacrifice made the payment for your sin, then you must do that today. You must. Jesus himself says, you must be born again. Otherwise, you bring judgment on yourself. Don't be a fool. Don't allow your pride and your sin to cause you to reject this priest and this sacrifice. Because he and his sacrifice are the only thing God accepts as holy. And without it, your sin will be laid bare, and you will die eternally as a traitor and a rebel against God. Repent. Receive cleansing. If you're a believer in Christ, though, this passage also has three things to say to you. Number one, I must stop trying to earn God's approval. You know why? Because I already got it. I must stop trying to earn God's approval because I already have it. God already loves you as much as he is ever going to. He already loves you supremely. He already sent his son for you so that you would be rescued from sin and death and hell. No one loves you more than that. And so he does not love you less having bought you with the blood of his son when you fall into sin. Certainly there are a lot of steps of obedience that you should and ought to take. But why you choose to take those steps of obedience makes all the difference in the world. And because we are already loved and accepted by God, is an excellent motivation to serve and to obey God. But we don't serve and obey God in order to receive God's love and approval. Amen? All right. Two more things. If you're a believer, you must claim Christ's forgiveness and cleansing from past sin. Even as Christians, I find that it's very easy to be weighed down by guilt and shame and the past. And to have things that, though you have sought God's forgiveness, that you really don't forgive yourself on. And what I want to say here is this, that you do not have a higher standard of holiness than God does. And God has cleansed and forgiven you. 
through the blood of his son. And you need to take your sin and shame and fear and replace it with freedom, recognizing that your redemption has already been achieved. And you don't need to feel bad about it forever. Why? Because how many of your sins were in the future when Christ died? All of them. Did he die for that one? Yes. Are you serious? Even this one? Yes. Even that one. Even that betrayal, even that affair, even that pornography addiction, even that theft, even that murder, even that whatever that I committed, yes. Even that. Christ died to bring you cleansing. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin. Amen? Amen. Last thing. If you're a believer, anticipate the coming of the Lord. Look at this last line in this passage. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting? Are you eager? No, come on now. Are you eagerly waiting? Blow that horn, Gabriel. Amen? <laughs> we are eagerly waiting. Why? Because when Christ comes, we will receive our inheritance. We will receive the thing which God has bought for us at great cost. We will actually experience and enjoy life in the presence of God and with his family family of God, the, all of the children that he has adopted in and made us co-heirs with Jesus. And so when Jesus comes, big brother has come back to get us and to take us home to be with dad. You know, we have great celebrations. When I get together with my family, with Karen's family, you know, we have, we have an obscene amount of food. Uh, you gain weight by walking in the door. You know, it's fantastic. It really is. Um, I have to run home from there to equate to the number of calories uh, that we eat at these celebrations, right? And God has promised us a feast, the great wedding supper of the Lamb, that the day is coming when Christ returns and we receive in our experience, all the things that we have been promised and that he has entrusted to us. So we have to eagerly wait for the coming of that day. All right? Blow that horn, Gabriel, and come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that today would be the day of salvation for any who have never received cleansing from the great high priest, Jesus Christ, and been washed and sanctified by his blood of sacrifice. And Father, I pray that if there's any here who's never made that decision, that today would be that day, that they would receive cleansing, forgiveness, and adoption into your family. Father, I pray also that those of us who know you would stop working in order to gain your approval, 
and recognize that in your grace you've already provided it and that you look down on us not with grumpy frowns, but with great joy and love. And we are called into relationship with him who is the commander of the armies of heaven, who is king of kings and lord of lords and yet loves to be with his children. And Father, we we thank you that we have complete cleansing of all of our sins. That in the moment that we confess it to you, it is removed from us as far as the east is from the west, and forgotten, removed, and put to death. And Father, we pray that those of us who are weighed down with burdens of things we have done in the past, thought in the past, said in the past, that we cannot take back. Father, we pray you would remove that burden, our guilt and our shame, and help us to walk in the newness and the joy, freedom. And Father, we pray that we would be looking forward to your coming. Maybe today the horn would blow, and we who are alive and remain would be caught up in the air with those who have gone before. Be with the Lord forever. Father, we pray that if it's not today, that we would still anticipate eagerly the coming of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.